It's the top 12 lessons learned from Noah's Ark. Here they are, number 12. Remember, we're all in the same boat. Number 11, two heads are better than one. Number 10, if you have to start over, do it with a friend. Number nine, I like this one. The woodpeckers inside the ark are a greater threat than the storm outside. Indeed. (laughs) Number eight, we learned this from Noah. Plan ahead. It wasn't raining when Noah was told by God to build the ark. Number seven, keep yourself in shape. When you're 600 years old, you may get asked to do something really big. Number six, don't listen to critics. Just get on with the job. That's good advice. Number five, for safety's sake, travel in pairs. Good advice. Number four, speed isn't always an advantage. Snails and cheetahs were on the ark. Number three, the ark was built by amateurs, whereas the Titanic was built by professionals. Number two, the number two reason Lesson we learn from Noah, no matter the storm, if you're with God, there's always a rainbow ahead. And then number one, the number one lesson we learn from Noah, don't miss the boat. Obviously, there's a lot we can learn from the story of Noah's Ark. And the Noahic Covenant is the focus of tonight's episode in our series, God's Covenants. We're talking about seven turning points in God's dealings with man and their accompanying covenants. Remember, a covenant is an agreement between people. It sets out the terms of a relationship. And the Bible is a series of covenants that God made with certain men at certain times in response to certain events. These covenants govern how God has chosen to deal with people throughout history, even with us today. You know, we compared the Bible with a NASCAR race. The action occurs in the turns. And there are seven transitions or turns in the biblical story where man crashes. And in response, God makes a new covenant with mankind. In week one, we discussed God's initial covenant with humanity in the Garden of Eden. The Edenic covenant was the arrangement that God made with the first man and woman before they bit the forbidden fruit. Week two focused on the aftermath of their sin, on the covenant that God made with Adam and Eve after they had sinned. The Adamic covenant had a profound impact on all of life. It threw a wrench into the gears of work and family. God left behind curses or reminders of the fall that made life more difficult. And this week, we're tackling the Noahic Covenant, for even today, whenever it rains, we're reminded that God's agreement with Noah still stands. Back in 2007, a technician working for the state of Alaska was performing some routine maintenance on a computer hard drive. Mistakenly, this technician reformatted not only the drive itself, but its backup. Data disappeared faster than you can say, oops. With one click of the enter key, nine months of entries, 800,000 scanned images just disappeared, gone, poof, 
The only remaining backups were 300 boxes of written records. It took over 70 employees working nonstop to re-enter the lost data. One keystroke, a single oops, cost the state of Alaska over $250,000. And one sin, one oops, cost Adam and Eve and their descendants far, far more. You see, the first couple wanted to be like God, but apart from God. They lusted for an autonomous wisdom. It wasn't that they didn't like God or that they didn't want to be with God. They just didn't want to be his subordinate. They wanted to captain their own ship. And when Satan tempted them, they took the bait with one bite of the forbidden fruit. Oops, they lost everything. All of life was affected. Mother Nature went bonkers. God's orderly creation suddenly became subject to randomness. We're now threatened by arbitrary disasters. Drought causes famine. Snowstorms shut down cities. Tsunamis wipe out coastlines. And even viruses threaten our way of life, even our very lives. All because of Adam's oops. Man's relationship with nature and work and family and most importantly God was damaged by a willful error. But that's when God instituted a covenant. And this is the reoccurring storyline in the drama of man. We rebel and sin against God, but God is relentless. He refuses to give up on mankind and he speeds to our rescue time and time again with a covenant. God reestablishes terms under which he and mankind can renew their relationship and begin their fellowship again. It's interesting, as soon as Adam and Eve sinned and poisoned their descendants, God came to them with a covenant. He responded with the promise of a Savior. Genesis 3 verse 15 is called the Proto-Evangelicum, or the first gospel. God told the serpent in the Garden of Eden, And I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. As we discussed last time, the seed of the woman was a Hebrew idiom for Jesus' virgin birth, whereas the seed of the serpent is ultimately Satan's antichrist. Hey, recall the war that rages between God and Satan. God created angels to be guardians or servants to man. Though we're created a little lower than the angels in stature, we were determined by God to rise above them in glory. Satan couldn't stand the thought of serving a creature that came from a clump of dirt. So as early as the Bible's second verse, he tried to stop God's creation. When he failed, he tried to spoil it by tempting Adam and Eve. And throughout history, Satan continues his assaults. He wants to keep humanity in darkness. He harbors a deep enmity or hostility toward mankind. Ultimately, Genesis 3 verse 15 foreshadows the cross. For as in any war, blows get exchanged. Satan inflicts Jesus with a heel bruise, a minor wound in proportion to the crippling blow that Jesus levels. For Jesus crushes the serpent's head or literally destroys Satan's authority there on the cross. He delivers the knockout to Satan and all his emissaries. But here's what's amazing. 
God's promise of a Savior arrives from the very beginning. On the eve of Satan's first victory, God is already predicting his ultimate triumph. The tempter deceives Eve and leads Adam astray. And though God is not pleased, neither does he panic. There's no hand-wringing or nervous pacing in heaven. God is always in the know and always in control. We need to remember that today. For God has a covenant for just this sort of situation. Genesis 3 even concedes that this won't be Satan's last hurrah. Before the serpent's crushing comes, he'll inflict some minor injuries. Satan bruises a heel or two. Here's the point, though. God expected the fall of man. He foresaw the damage done by sin and Satan, even the suffering of his son Jesus. Revelation 13 verse 8 proves as much. It calls Jesus the lamb slain from the foundation of the world. God saw the results of sin and suffering, and yet in his plan, in his purposes, he had a reason. Your sin, and what's more, your salvation was known to God before the very first people were created. Like a parent teaching a baby to walk, God knew that there would be some spills for mankind along the way. Some falls would be part of the process. Apparently, God's master plan assumed that sin would invade his perfect world and contaminate his creation. God wanted us to experience a world gone haywire. Now, don't misunderstand. God is never responsible for our sin. But he does take advantage of it, and he uses it to accomplish his purposes. God's intention was never to simply restore man what sin had lost. Adam and Eve sitting naked under a tree, munching fruit, was never our ultimate destiny. God's goal was not to recreate the man and the woman's innocence in the garden. In God's estimation, a redeemed man is superior to an innocent man. You know, an innocent Adam had no knowledge of sin. But neither did he know the joy of God's forgiveness. Neither did he know the miracle of reconciliation or the gift of God's righteousness. He was a blank slate, not a negative, but neither was he a positive. Morally and spiritually, Adam was a zero. And God's goal isn't to spend eternity with zeros. Here's tonight's big idea. We gain more in Christ than we lost in Adam. We gain more in Christ than we lost in Adam. In 1719, Isaac Watts penned a hymn entitled, Jesus Shall Reign Where'er the Sun. And in his song, he writes of Jesus. In him the tribes of Adam boast more blessings than their father lost. And this is so important. The goal of our redemption was not to return to Adam's innocence, but to bless us with far more. In Christ, we have a new nature. Jesus calls us friends. We're clothed in his righteousness. We're God's children, his beloved. We're heirs to his glory. None of this was ascribed to an innocent Adam. Realize a right standing with God in Christ is superior to the innocence of Adam. Christ's gift of salvation is greater than Adam's perfection. Here's what I believe. 
I think God prefers hanging out with people who sinned yet have tasted of his grace over people who've known nothing but innocence. I'm not excusing our sin. I'm not trying to turn evil into good. But the existence of sin and suffering in the world and the joy that comes from our salvation creates a gratitude and a humility that pleases God. It seems that love for God and praise to God becomes pure when it flows out of a redeemed heart. See, God has a reason that he's tolerated evil in the world. Sadly, one of the chief human traits is our tendency toward boredom. Anything, no matter how good, loses its luster over time, it seems. We don't know how long Adam and Eve were in Eden before they tired of God's menu. But boredom and curiosity was one of the things that led to their massive oops. Now imagine you and I in a perfect heaven. How long do you think it would take for us to get bored if we had no comparisons? Could it be the temporary pain we've experienced in this evil world is necessary preparation for the eternity that God has planned for us? We'll have a better appreciation for His government having endured the disaster of what happens when man is in charge. God knew a brief time under fallen conditions would maximize our eternal enjoyment. Here's how you could say it. Our fallen world is not the best possible world to live in. It's full of heartache and headache and heartbreak. Through Christ, God will one day redeem this world from sin's curse. But God in his wisdom sees this fallen world as the best possible way to the best possible world. Living in a sin-scarred world is preparing us for glory. In God's estimation, a world that's known sin and its consequences, yet has been redeemed, is better than a world of innocence. This is why from the outset, God made a redeeming covenant with Adam and Eve. The seed of the woman would be our Savior. And that's why when Eve births the first child born of humans, she names him Cain. It means I have him. She's quoted in Genesis chapter 4 verse 1. I have acquired a man from the Lord. One translation reads, I have gotten a man, even Yahweh. You see, from the beginning, Eve assumed that her son was God's promised Savior. He was the seed of the woman in her mind. He was the one who would crush the serpent's head. And this was understandable. Think of Eve. She's living now outside the garden. She's just experienced the labor pains that God warned her would come. She's longing to be redeemed from the far-reaching pain that her sin has caused, and she hopes her son, Cain, is the answer. Here's an old riddle. What were Adam and Eve doing after God expelled them from the garden? The answer? They were raising Cain. And that was all it took to shatter Eve's illusion. For as soon as she got her baby home from the hospital, she realized that like all babies, he was selfish and he was self-willed, came through temper tantrums and told lies and got jealous and pouted when he didn't get his way. 
Their son Cain was born as self-centered as Adam and Eve had become. Cain wasn't the Savior. He was a brat. Cain was a pain. And slowly, Eve became painfully aware of the implications of her sin. Not only for her and her husband Adam, but for the whole human race. In fact, she ends up naming her second son Abel, which means vanity, meaninglessness, worthlessness. It doesn't take Eve long to despair. Her life, a life that was so rich and full at one time, had turned to vanity. Well, when Adam and Eve sinned, they tried to cover their shame with fig leaves. And this is our first inclination when we sin. Oh, I'll turn over a new leaf. We rely on self-improvement and trust in our own efforts to cover our sin. But God swapped their fig leaves with animal skins. For God insisted on a sacrifice. If you want your sin to be atoned, if you want your sin to be forgiven, you need a sacrifice. And apparently God had taught that lesson to Adam and Eve and their family. For when the brothers come to worship... They know that the wages of sin is death. God's covenant requires a blood offering. And thus Abel, being a shepherd, admitted his need by bringing with him a lamb. He came on God's terms. He offered a sacrifice. Cain, though, was a farmer. And he was proud of his accomplishments, his hard work. And thus he offered the fruits of his harvest. Yet Cain's horn of plenty proved not enough. God accepted Abel's sacrifice and rejected Cain's self-effort. And this is still the terms of God's covenant with mankind. The motto, do it yourself, might work with home repairs, but it won't make you right with God. We have to humble ourselves and trust in a sacrifice. God forgives us when we trust in Jesus, his spotless lamb. Rather than humble himself and trust in someone else, In another, in a sacrifice, Cain's pride turned to anger and he murdered Abel. Eve's son, Cain, ended up a murderer, not a savior. Imagine the regret Eve felt over her son's crime and her family's loss. What had she done? Her oops in the garden had proved costly indeed. And from the first family, the story of mankind goes from bad to worse to worse worse. In fact, the early chapters of Genesis depict Adam's immediate descendants as technologically advanced but morally corrupt and spiritually deviant. The antediluvian world, that is the world before the deluge or the flood, boasted against God. The people lived in open immorality and worshipped the occult. Apparently, the antediluvians crossed boundaries God never intended They sold out completely to sin and Satan. The depth of their sin became irreparable, so much so that in Genesis chapter 6, verse 6, we're told the Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth, and he was grieved in his heart. God grieved. You know, grief is a love word. You can be angry or disappointed with a person and not love them, but you only grieve over a person you love. God loved mankind. And to preserve the human race, he wiped out the antediluvian corruption. And he started over with a man 
and his family. Enter Noah. Now, as I suggested in the beginning, everything I really need to know, I learned from Noah. Well, the biggest lesson we glean from Noah is found in Genesis chapter 6, verse 8. For while the world is going to hell in a handbasket, we're told, Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. Noah found grace. Rather than following Cain's footsteps and try to impress God with his own prideful goodness, Noah relied on grace. He had a faith in God's mercy and in God's effort. And God entered into a covenant with Noah by grace through faith. God told Noah to build a cargo ship of gopher wood and prepare for at least two of every animal species. Noah stocked up on Dramamine, no doubt. Got a tin can for the termites. Better watch out for those guys. Held off on the fly swatter. Well, I doubt he had the Dramamine, but Noah and his family, they obeyed. They followed God's instructions. And when the day came, all eight of them, Noah, his wife, his three sons and their wives, all entered the ark. And guess who shut the door behind them? Genesis 7 verse 16 tells us, the Lord shut them in. Again, it was God in charge. God sealed up the entrance hatch of the ark uptight. And then it rained and rained and rained for 40 days and for 40 nights. Technically, underground aquifers spewed water upwards while collapsing cloud banks caused water to fall downwards. It was a global deluge. And if you are not on board the ark... It didn't matter how talented a swimmer you were or how hard you trained. Realize every Olympian drowned in the flood. If Michael Phelps had been out there in the water, he would have gone under as well. The only people to survive the floodwaters were those who trusted in God's salvation and got on board with his plan. And this is what the covenants are about. Getting on board with God's plan. Are you on board with his plan tonight? Well, when Noah exited the ark, he stepped out into a very different world than before the flood. 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 6 comments, The world that then existed perished. Before the flood, the earth's topography was flat. The climate all around the world was mild. The conditions were safe. But when Noah and his family walked out of the ark, he was now facing rugged terrain and brutal weather and lethal predators. Many scientists and Bible scholars alike believe that before the flood, the earth was shrouded in a vapor canopy that created a greenhouse effect over the entire world. A tropical climate and a lush vegetation covered the globe. This cloud cover may have filtered out solar radiation that today accelerates the aging process. This is why the early chapters in Genesis record people living 900 years After the flood, lifespans dropped to current ages. Certainly, when Noah stepped out of the ark, he walked out into a very different planet that he had known before the floodwaters. He faced a brave new world. And Genesis chapter 8, verse 20, records Noah's first act on dry ground. Noah built an altar to the Lord 
and took of every clean animal and of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings. People assumed two of each animal boarded the ark, but Noah actually took seven each of the animals that were fit for sacrifice. For he knew, as with all of God's covenants, they require a sacrifice. And I'm sure God's response to Noah's sacrifice was a welcome relief to the survivors. For God promises at the end of chapter 8 that despite man's wickedness, to never again destroy every living thing as I have done. Mankind's heart was still evil, and from time to time and place to place, local judgments would be needed, but God would never again flood the earth globally. In Genesis 9, verse 1, God makes a covenant with Noah, and here's our text. He makes a promise especially suited for a post-world a post-flood world, he says. So God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. That was their instruction. Be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth. Eight people survived the flood. Noah, his wives, his wife, his one wife, his three sons and their wives, eight people total. And it was up to these four couples to repopulate the planet. Talk about pressure. And I know how this went down just from experience. The men realized how to populate, and they got real excited. And then the wives realized the results of populating, and they weren't quite so sure. But take the population trends over the last century and extrapolate them back 4,500 years, and you end up with a world population of eight. Your great-grandpa was Noah's son either Shem or Ham or Japheth. Verse 2, The fear of you and the dread of you shall be on every beast of the earth, on every bird of the air, and on all that moves on the earth, and on all the fish of the sea. They are given into your hand. Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. I have given you all things, even as the green herbs. Now, this was strategic and a far-reaching covenant. It even impacts our diet today. Here, God sanctions the enjoyment of bacon and burgers and steak and shrimp and chicken wings and bratwurst and sausage pizza, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. See, prior to the flood, humans were vegetarians. But after the global flood, God added meat to mankind's diet. Realize there is nothing Christian about vegetarianism. The God of the Bible blesses us with Big Macs and barbecue ribs and sirloin steak. Evidently, post-flood conditions on earth required a diet with extra protein. And now that animals became a human food source, God instills within the animal kingdom a fear of man. This was God's way of evening the score. He protected animals by placing in them a dread or fear. Imagine a deer hunter coaxing little Bambi out of the woods with some sugar cubes in his hand and then opening fire. That's not fair. If God hadn't placed a dread of man in the animals, it would have been an unfair advantage for the meat-eating men. 
I'm sure at first Noah and his furry friends were happy when the ark docked and they exited the boat. But this new world that they inhabited was radically different now. Noah and the animals were no longer pals. Imagine on board the ark, gators and grizzlies eating out of Noah's hand. But from now on, Noah and sons need to keep their hand away from the jaws of such animals. For overnight, Noah's cruise mates turn into natural predators. It's now meat eaters versus man eaters. Human beings are now forced to hunt or be hunted. And the ancients were not equipped with shotguns. My point is, suddenly, it was a scary new world for Noah and his sons. After the flood, every time a bush rustled, Noah wondered if he was being stalked. Danger loomed everywhere. Verse 5 anticipates this new hostility. Surely, for your lifeblood, I will demand a reckoning. From the hand of every beast, I will require it. And from the hand of man. All life comes from God, and all life is a gift from God. But in contrast to the values of modern culture, all life is not created equal. Man alone is made in God's image, not plants, not animals. Christians believe that human life is of greater value than the life of a plant or of a pet. Now understand, I'm not advocating cruelty to either plants or animals, but the life of a dog or the life of an aged oak tree isn't on the same level as a human life. It's okay for me to cut down an oak tree for firewood to warm my family. My family's need overrides the life of that oak. And it's justified for me to kill a cow to feed my hungry family. Human life takes priority over animals. This is why if a dog bites a man, the dog gets put down. Whereas if a man shoots a dog for no reason, he can be fined or jailed, but you don't put him down. God's covenant with Noah made human life superior to either plant life or animal life. God continues, From the hand of every man's brother, I will require the life of man. Whoever sheds man's blood, by man his blood shall be shed, for in the image of God he made man. Here God institutes a death penalty, capital punishment. And his rationale is not deterrence. Sociologists today argue endlessly as to whether the death penalty deters murderers and serial killers. I'll just say one thing about it. It certainly deters the guy who gets the needle. But deterrence is really an irrelevant point. The motive behind the death penalty isn't to cut crime or to save lives. It's to glorify God. For humans are made in God's image. Thus murder is a direct attack on God. The image of God in you and me. That's the reason it's so deserving of death. Well, the Noahic covenant mandates capital punishment. And by inference... It institutes the idea of human government to carry it out. Up until Noah's exit from the ark, there was no such thing as human government. The pre-flood world was governed by the individual's conscience. But here, God assumes 
an objective authority. God establishes the government and the police in particular to execute his will. Later in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus tells his followers to turn the other cheek. But he's speaking of personal interaction. His instructions to believers don't alter the responsibility that God gives to government. Always remember, God invented three human institutions, marriage and church and government. Now God goes on in the next few verses to clarify that his covenant with Noah wasn't just with Noah, but it was with his descendants and all living creatures. God will never destroy the earth with water again, and he offers a sign to prove it. In chapter 9, verse 13, God tells us, I set my rainbow in the cloud, and it shall be for the sign of the covenant between me and the earth. God sets a rainbow in the sky as a token of his promise. Of course, a rainbow is an optical phenomenon where water droplets reflect refract light. They create a prism effect. The droplets reveal the colors of the spectrum. I'm sure that there were rainbows prior to the flood, perhaps in the garden mist. But since the flood was the first time it had actually rained on the earth, no human prior to Noah had ever seen a rainbow hanging in the clouds. And understand this statement that God made with the rainbow. God literally hung up his bow where all could see. The Hebrew word translated rainbow refers to a bow and arrow, a weapon of war. When God hung up his bow, he hung up his intent to destroy mankind. See, here's the gist of the Noahic covenant. After the flood, every time Noah felt a raindrop on his shoulder, or heard a thunderclap off in the distance. It was for Noah a test of his faith. Each time Noah heard noises in the dark, or the bushes rustle, or an animal howl in the distance, the question he faced was, would he trust God God in a fallen world? Would he lean on God's grace? Or would he succumb to fear and doubt God's grace toward him? See, God had hung up his bow as a proof of his mercy. God's agenda from now to the end of the age is salvation, not condemnation. But do we trust him? Do we have faith enough to enter a covenant relationship with God? Well, in Genesis 9 verse 1, God told Noah's descendants to multiply and to scatter, to fill the whole earth. But that wasn't their first impulse. Again, the people disobeyed God. Rather than spread out, they huddled up for protection. Again, the earth was no longer a safe place. It was now a foreign and frightening environment. The various tribes succumbed to their fears, and in disobedience to God, they gathered in Babel in the plain of Shinar. Humanity joined together as one people under one government with one ruler by the name of Nimrod. Nimrod means to rebel, and that's exactly what he did. Nimrod led a revolt against God. The Lord had hung up his bow and had sought for peace with man. But Nimrod became the mighty hunter before the Lord. One interpretation puts it, a mighty hunter against the Lord. 
The idea being that Nimrod tried to draw people away from their allegiance to God and after himself. Tradition says Nimrod was a skilled archer. He was known for his bow. God had deliberately hung up his bow, but Nimrod now takes up his bow to fight against God's will. Nimrod was a hunter. And legend has it that he had an uncanny way with animals. He was the first to domesticate wild horses. He brought dangerous beasts under his sway. Hey, among men not accustomed to this new threat from the animal kingdom, Nimrod was a very impressive person. And he played on men's fears. In the wake of the new threats posed by a post-flood world, he manipulated people into following him. People looked to Nimrod for protection. He made appealing promises. Nimrod was hailed as a savior. He was the first Antichrist. And this is still Satan's strategy today. He manipulates us by fear. He loves to play on your fears. And in doing so, sabotage your faith. Satan likes to amplify the bumps in the night. He turns up the volume on the what-ifs of life and tortures us with what will never happen. Satan wants us to believe that God can't be trusted or that God's out to get us. Notice what Nimrod does in chapter 11 of Genesis. Nimrod builds a tower to the heavens, not for God's glory, but to make a name for himself, the Scripture says. We're told in verse 3 that in the construction of this observatory, they use brick for stone and asphalt for mortar. It seems ancient asphalt was a waterproofing material. So here's what Nimrod does. He builds a waterproof skyscraper in the desert. And why would anybody build a watertight tower in the middle of a dust bowl? There's only one reason. That's if you're worried about a flood. See, Nimrod refused to trust God and his rainbow. And he caused others to doubt God too. Nimrod was resentful and angry at God's judgment. He didn't trust in God's covenant now. He was suspicious of God's intentions. He thought he knew better than God. He doubted his mercy and viewed God as his enemy. And I'm sure you know some modern Nimrods. I do. Rather than trust in God's grace, they trust in themselves. In their minds, they don't need God. They resent his authority and they doubt his good intentions. In essence, Nimrod called God a liar. Nimrod hailed himself as humanity's savior. His goal was to deliver mankind from that cruel tyrant who flooded the earth with water. Nimrod made God out to be the bad guy and himself out to be the good guy. The Jewish Talmud says Nimrod wanted to wage war against God. But Nimrod's war didn't last long. For in Genesis 11, we're told how God came down to Babel. And he crashed the party. He confused the original universal language. And this breakdown in communication caused a separation. It drove men apart and scattered the people as God had intended in the first place. And once again, God responded with a covenant. But here's the twist. No longer will God try to reach and deal with mankind as a whole. He'll now choose a single man and bring salvation 
to all men through his family. In Genesis 11, Satan had orchestrated a worldwide rebellion by choosing a man named Nimrod and a place named Babel and a means called fear. But now, in Genesis 12, God counters with the work of redemption. He establishes a fresh covenant. God chooses a man named Abraham. And he chooses a place, the land of Canaan, in a means known as faith. And in a very real sense, your Bible is divided into two sections. And I'm not talking about the Old Testament and the New Testament. A better dividing line is between Genesis 11 and Genesis 12. Through Genesis 11, God tries to establish a covenant with all of mankind, with the entire Adam's family. But man's sinful heart rallies against God. So now, from here until the end of your Bible, God will work primarily through one family to redeem all the world, all mankind. And next week, we're going to tackle the granddaddy of all God's covenants, the root covenant from which the rest of the covenants stem, the Abrahamic covenant. But here's tonight's big question. Will you trust in God's grace and live by faith in a fearful, scary world? Our world has become more fearful and more scary just recently. Even in the midst of a pandemic virus, will we cower to fear and in doing so deny our God? Or will we trust our welfare and our destiny to a faithful and loving Heavenly Father? Here's the question tonight. God has hung up His bow. Will you hang up yours?